Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things that we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is April 22nd, 2014. This is episode 1339 of the Survival Podcast. And it is uh, it's kind of a special podcast because it is the last survival podcast. Well, for 10 days. It's not really the last survival podcast, it was the last one for 10 days. I'm going on vacation starting tomorrow. You'll have to listen to reruns uh, while I'm gone. I am going to be gone until, let me look it up to make sure I get it right. I'm going to be coming back on the 3rd, which is a Saturday. So that means no more this week, none next week. And we'll return on Monday the 5th. I do apologize again for the fact that I actually do take vacations on occasion. And I do have to be gone. I've done this before where I've... Uh, I've just got kind of mentally nuts and, and cranked out like, you know, 20 episodes in 10 days and then preloaded those 10 episodes so I could be gone. Uh, I could not do that this year. And, and, and what we're going to talk about today is part of why. I, today's episode 1339 is 21 things I planted this year and why. Yeah, 21 things that I planted. And uh, the truth is that I planted probably a hundred varieties of things this year. And I say I, but the truth is that I didn't do it. We did it. Uh, a lot of students came here and planted a lot of this stuff. But honestly, a lot of the stuff I'm going to tell you about here um, is stuff that I did plant. Because most of it, a eh, few things were, but a lot of it wasn't here yet. We had the event. These have been my uh, things that take it to another level. We'll leave it at that. And uh, I have some really cool stuff to tell you about today. Um, before I do that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today, Jam Bullion. Hey, how about this? How about a place where you can buy silver, and if you have any problems at all uh, with your order, and you do at least contact them first, like they do have customer service, and if there's any hiccups and you're not happy, you contact me and I email the owner. How about a place like that? That's what JM Bullion is. I love JM Bullion. Did you know they have free shipping? Now, here's the catch. They don't take any order under $100 online. So about five ounces of silver is the minimum order. But, you know, if you're buying quantities much less than that, you probably are better off buying locally anyway because the shipping will kill you. But somehow, some way, as long as you're ordering $100 worth of silver or more, they'll ship it free to your house. They have an incredible selection. I've talked a lot about putting silver away for your kids. And hey, even if you're wanting to do like an ounce a month, if you have two kids, that's, you know, every three months order six ounces and you'll be over the spot price of, uh, over, you know, over the $100 barrier and get free shipping. Incredible selection. Incredible stuff. You know what I'm going to pick up? Something that's really lacking in my collection of silver. I have a ton of pre-64 silver stuff and I have a ton of bullion. Uh, not a literal ton, but a bunch of it. But I don't have many silver dollars. And I was just on their site yesterday. Check this out for a good deal. Well, heck, I was going to tell you about a great deal. I guess it was such a great deal they sold out. Uh, they had peace dollars on here yesterday. Uh, for like $21 a piece. Peace for $21 a piece. Um, today they do not. They do have a pretty good price on Morgan silver dollars. Um, 29 bucks for quantity 1 to 99 for Morgan silver dollars 1878 to 1904 and possibly a 1921 if that ends up coming in fine condition. So 
I don't know if I'm going to pick those up or not, man. The price on those peace dollars was smoking, and I thought about picking them up. So that's a reason to check out their site from time to time. I'll have to email Michael over there and ask him when they're going to get those peace dollars back in because uh, they were just here yesterday. I had a few of them in my cart. I was going to check out, and I got busy with the show, and I didn't. So, hey, man, there's always something cool and unique over at JM Bullion. Uh, next up today, our sponsor of the day number two today, Western Botanicals. Uh, they're like gold to me. Let me tell you something. Um, I just spent a lot of time working over the last three days, like like a dog, to get ready to leave. So I was planting a lot of the stuff I'm going to talk about with you guys today. I planted a lot of seeds and stuff yesterday as well into the forest, a bunch of annuals mixed in. Um, and I've been sore, man. And I'll tell you what, anti-inflammatory formula from Western Botanicals does me well. It's mostly turmeric, black cohosh, and some other things, and it does really well for me. And their uh, deep heat ointment works really good, too, when I'm sore. I always prefer to go to herbs before do I go to pharmaceutical drugs. I'm not saying you should, but I'm saying maybe you should at least educate yourself about it and think about it. Uh, gentle, uh, you know, safe, effective treatments uh, are generally a better choice than you know pharmaceuticals that are designed really to make the companies that produce the money. That's that's the reason that they're they're made. Some of them are life saving. Don't get me wrong, but I think a lot of people take a lot of medications a lot of times when they would be better suited finding another alternative. That's just how I personally feel about it. Check out Western Botanicals. Real people that really care about you. And remember, they support the uh, member support brigade. Uh, if you uh, are an MSB member, you get their premium membership for free. It gives you 25% off on all orders. MSB discount vendor of the day, Next Level Training. I just featured them last week, but I realized I better feature them again because a lot of people were interested when I did and didn't realize they were an MSB vendor. They make the CERT, which is a training uh, handgun. Fires a very accurate laser. It's an accurate uh, reproduction of your sidearm. And uh, they are awesome, awesome for training. And I have you guys a 21.5% discount from Next Level Training on all of their product. Check them out today, nextleveltraining.com. Consider joining the MSB to get that discount, discount to Western Botanicals, discount to JM Bullion, and discount to over 40 other companies. Somebody emailed me yesterday about a discount for the Permaculture Voices videos. Uh, the video series from Permaculture Voices that Diego Footer put on. Diego has gotten that information to me. I will get it in the MSB before I leave. I promise you it will be in there today. So uh, just wanted to mention that real quick, that that is the latest discount that I've organized for you guys, and I will continue to work to get you guys more discounts uh, because that's, that's what I do. That's how I bring value to the MSB. With that, uh, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. It's a great opportunity to uh, save some money and support the show. And uh, with that, that's all I'm going to say on that today. Let's uh, talk real quick about the year that was the episode 1339, Swiss Wars, the Forest Battle of Lopin. This is from Alex Shrugged over at TSPWiki.com. Bird's economy is nothing to brag about, but the local feudal lords feel threatened. So the lords have donated a tithe to soldiers to attack Bern. So Bern's sitting there minding its own flipping business. And a bunch of bureaucrats are like, we don't like these people, so let's use the force of a sword to enforce our will on them. Unfortunately, the lords set up separate camps for their armies, like typical dumb politicians. It doesn't say that, I added that. Separating the cavalry from the infantry. This is a mistake, you think? Uh, to counter this makeshift alliance, Bern has called upon the Confederacy, the forest cantons that will one day be known as Switzerland. In a flanking move, the burn forces attack the forest in columns. 
Splitting up the camp forces, a tactic that Napoleon will be good use of in the future. The armies of the feudal lords are routed, and a majority of their casualties are self-inflicted in a panicked retreat. In time, Byrne will join the Confederacy. This is also the first time the White Cross and Red Field is used on a battle flag. It will eventually become the flag of Switzerland. Um, Alex's take on this is Napoleon made famous the military tactic of being strong in one or two places, overwhelming the opposing force in those places and blowing through. Uh, and it's true. I, I take another military lesson from this, though. So it's all good and well to exercise the non-aggression principle. In fact, I think we should. And I think that if someone isn't clearly about to attack you, you don't use force. But the reality is in a military conflict, the attacker almost always has the advantage. If you examine military warfare throughout history, you'll find that most of the time, not all the time, most of the time the victory goes to the attacker. Well, in this case, these mercenaries, let's just call them what they are, working for these feudal lords, were not just sitting there playing tiddlywinks. They were getting ready to attack. Byrne called upon the Confederacy of the Forest Canton, and they attacked first. So they chose the time of the battle. They chose the method of the battle. And by doing so, they were able to control the battle. Yes, they split the forces, and the lords were stupid and split their forces on their own to make it even easier. Yes, they used columns and blew through and flanked them and, and did all of those things. But why could they do all of those things? Not just because the lords were stupid, because they took the initiative. And that, that lesson for us in life is not just about battle and warfare. Um, but it is about the fact that the victory usually goes to those who take the initiative. That's our lesson from the day from history. Let's get on to a completely unrelated episode today. 21 things I planted this year and why the heck I planted them. Like I said, so the past few weeks have been really a whirlwind. We had this workshop at 34 students and staff of about eight, plus myself and Dorothy, uh, and we were out here and we planted 200, 300-ish trees, plus some shrubs and stuff and some other things. We did mushrooms, we did all kinds of stuff. Uh, and then everybody left, and everybody thought, wow, Jack got all that stuff planted, and Jack's like, yeah, Jack didn't get everything planted. Um, shipment after shipment has continued to come in of some of these rare and unusual things that it took me later in the year to get. Some of my support species finally got here and things like that, and I'm getting ready to go on vacation. And I've been all fine and well with telling Joe, hey, plant, right, is my intern. Um, but two things have gone on. So first of all, Joe's coming up to the end of his internship, and I don't really see him as an intern anymore. I see him as a partner now. So I'm not going to just throw all the all my crap at him like I did when he first got here. He's he's now a business partner with me with Perma Ethos. He's going up to run the farm. So he's he's graduated from intern status. So how much I actually dump on him has actually changed a lot because he's earned that. But the other thing is, so... It's like I would trust somebody to recommend a car for me, right? Say, like, I think you should buy this car or this truck. And then once they do, like, uh, okay, now when it comes to optioning it out and painting it, right, and, like, what color it's going to be and how far the seats are going to recline and all that stuff, when you get into that really fine-tuning the options, you kind of want to take that completely personally, right? So my little shaping here at the end with these little little types of things like I'm talking about today, a lot of them anyway, has been something that, like, I want my 100% personal stamp on that. So I've kind of, you know, plus you guys came in and planted, like, 300 of my trees and I don't want people to come here and think I'm some kind of a slacker, so I wanted to make sure that I planted a lot of the stuff personally. So I've kind of taken on doing that this week, and I've wanted to get it done before I leave. 
so that everything's either in a pot or in the ground. So, Because Joe's going to have 10 days that are going to be pretty tough, as far as I'm concerned. Because we've got baby ducks, a baby goose, baby chickens, two different systems that need to be moved around and shifted, dogs to take care of, the main chickens, the main geese, and usually that's spread out between myself and Joe and Dorothy, and now Joe has to do all that crap for the next 10 days while he's getting ready to leave. So I didn't want anything extra there. So I've been going nuts to get this stuff done. And I've planted probably 100 different plants or more in the past three days. And I'm tired and sore. So when I was saying, like, I was using the Western Botanical stuff for my achy joints and all, man, I ain't kidding. Because when I hit that beach tomorrow, I want to feel good. I don't want to be sore and I don't want to be tired. But this is, a lot of this has been the stuff that, And some of the stuff was here and was planted with the students, but a lot of this stuff is stuff that's come in since. you got to get a little later in the year. It's a little harder to find, a little harder to come by. Some of the suppliers were northern suppliers, and basically they couldn't get the stuff here by the time we did the class because their ground was still frozen, and they go out and dig this stuff out of the ground, as a lot of these nurseries do. So... Uh, with that in mind, let's start going through the stuff I planted, and we'll talk about what it is and why. And what I'm going to do, usually I have a, all my resources in the show notes under resources for today's show, and there'll still be some there. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to put a link next to every item on my list. So I'm going to start with Shapova, and it'll say link. And if I want to put two links in, I'll put link one, link two. They may be a place you can buy it, or they may be a place with just information about it. A lot of this stuff is not available at this point for the rest of the year. So like Ivan's Bell and Ivan's Beauty Mountain Ash Hybrids I'll talk about, I don't think you can get those now. Uh, Dapple Dandy Pluot is another one. I don't think you can get that now. All right, So I'll put a link, and it may be where you can get it, but it might be sold out. But some of the stuff that like, and I don't know why Raintree does this. This just annoys me about Raintree Nursery, even though they're a great supplier. When they don't have something available, they basically blank the page out and say this page isn't available, and they take away the information about it which kind of sucks, because maybe people would buy it from you next year, Raintree, are you listening? If they actually knew what it was and could research it and realize you were a supplier. And maybe you should put a little thing, guys, over there, your web team at Raintree, notify me when this item is back in stock. And maybe you could actually sell more of this rare stuff, and, and that way you could bring in more supply and not sell out so quickly. Just, just suggesting. Anyway, first thing that I planted that you may never have heard of this year is Shapova. Shapova. It just sounds cool, doesn't it? What is a Shapova? Well, a mountain ash crossed with a pear. That is a Shapova. And it grows larger than a mountain ash berry, which is pretty daggone small, but not quite as big as a pear. Think of it as a really small round pear that is pear-like, but not quite a pear. That is a Shapova. Why did I plant Shapova? I planted Shapova because you've probably never heard of it. That's one big reason. But I also think about that characteristic, that buttery pear characteristic, and just having that as a fruit and having that as something I can share with people. I also think about I have a second one on the way now, so I'm going to have two of these. And they're in the urban garden, so they're going to be kept very small, but they should produce a pretty good amount. And that would be a very unique mead, wouldn't it? Basically, it's like a perry, which is like a apple cider made with pears, but a perry mead made with shapova. So I have these great big beehives out there now that next year should be producing gobs of honey. Chapova mead just sounds cool. So that was one of the that was one of the reasons I planted that. I just seemed like a cool tree. I want my urban space. My urban space is this little area with three little berms in it and some ponds. 
And I wanted that to be a place that when someone came here, I could show them incredible diversity and incredible variety and incredible variety of things they've never even heard of in just like this one little space before they even walk the rest of the property. And hit them with a chapeau, but I thought that was cool. In with that, and I've put this on one line, uh, I've also got Ivan's Bell and Ivan's Beauty. These are also mountain ash hybrids, and they're very, very cool um, in that they're, again, something you probably haven't seen before, and they're just really pretty-looking plants as well. Uh, before I go into that, i got to back up. I said that the Shapova is a pair um, crossed with mountain ash. I guess i got mountain ash on the brain. Um, it's actually crossed with white beam, so it's a pair white beam. So from there, let's move on to something that actually is a mountain ash hybrid. Uh, these are called Ivan's Beauty and Ivan's Bell. And uh, these are just... Uh, You know, they, they almost kind of just, you look at the berries and think, well, I'd like to have that in my backyard, and, and now I do. So let's start out with uh, Ivan's Beauty. Ivan's Beauty is a hybrid of Veronia and Mountain Ash. It produces uh, clusters of pink-tinted flowers, and then it produces fruit that's about a half-inch diameter. It's dark purple, and it's something you can eat f uh, fresh, or you can make it into... Uh, a juice or a jelly or a grape or, a, oh, I'm sorry, or a wine. And, uh, again, think about kind of like a mountain ash, the glossy green leaves and the bright orange berries that a mountain ash has. And then these are purple. And they're like a very cool purple. Uh, there's something you really might want to take a look at and consider making part of, you know, a unique backyard orchard of your own. Ivan's Bell is... Uh, kind of really cool it's mountain ash crossed with hawthorn and it's a small tree so that makes it fit well into an urban space very attractive dark green foliage and the it's it's a red wine colored fruit uh it's a tart fruit about the size of a pie cherry and it's also used eaten fresh or uh, to make wine and preserves i'm thinking Ivan's Bell wine will probably be something with one tree, unless I do cuttings and make more trees, that I can't produce a lot of. It will probably be something that I can produce, you know, maybe two or three gallons of a year. And that might be very well when I do it. And I might actually consider doing a wine that is the two of them blended together, the Ivan's Beauty and Ivan's Bell, and calling it something like Ivan's Wine. I don't know. Uh, Ivan is this guy, Ivan Minchurin, who is a Russian that, uh, I guess, sits around and crosses plants all day long. Uh, but these are an example, when I've talked to you guys about setting up backyard nurseries, and I've said there's a lot of work to be done. Uh, these are examples of the things that can be created. Uh, this was just done by a guy that figured out how to get these two things to cross each other. And there's no reason this type of work can't be done in a backyard. So those uh, I'm counting as one item, Ivan's Beauty and Ivan's Bell, Mountain Ash Hybrids. Again, Mountain Ash crossed with um, a uh, Aronia, which we'll talk about in a little bit. And then the other one is Mountain Ash crossed with Hawthornberry. So uh, it's, it's interesting what you can get things to cross with. Next thing I planted, I planted several different varieties of reds and yellows, both uh, Cornelian Cherry. Uh, Cornus Moss and Cornus Cosa are the scientific names on these. Uh, Cornelian Cherry is a member of the dogwood family. So it looks like a dogwood. It flowers like a dogwood. It's a pretty 
tree. It's not a huge tree. It's a, it's a very easy tree to maintain, you know, where you can pretty much reach all the branches on the tree or make it a little bit higher than you can reach and, and keep it pruned down with uh, with lava pruners. Uh, so it's ideal for small backyards. Um, it has been used for over 7,000 years as a food crop in ancient Greece. It was a commercial food crop for thousands and thousands of years, uh, grown on, on everywhere from the Greek islands up into the Ukraine and Russia, uh, along the Black Sea as well. Handles zone 5 to 8. I think it really is an underrated thing. I think that I don't know why it's never really picked up. I think it has, uh, actually it has some pretty awesome potential It's a commercial product if it's marketed right. It's eat it out of hand. It makes good syrups, jellies, jams, pies, wines, baked goods. I mean, what more could you want? Now, here's what makes this tree so awesome. It can handle frost during the bloom without losing its blossoms down to 18 degrees. Now, a lot of fruit producers have bad years where the trees leaf out, they blossom, they bloom, And they get a late frost. It's not like they get a killing frost, but they just get a frost late in the year, right when the trees are about to start setting fruit, and bam, knocks the blossoms off. And they get very, very poor to no production from some of their trees during that year. This is going to be a tree that's going to be able to get by that very, very well. Um, and, and, and deal with that because it can handle, I mean, if you have a late frost below 18 degrees, you're probably growing this tree where you shouldn't. I mean, that, that's how I'll put it to you that way. So I think that a tree with this much going for it, small size, easy to maintain below 15 feet, really easy to maintain below that. Uh, but you can grow it up to a 15, 25 foot tree. If you want to do a full size orchard of these things, it's up to you. It's partially self-fertile, so you don't have to necessarily have a high amount of pollination going on to get uh, reasonable production. Of course, more pollination, the better. And I think it's something that, that probably has a ton of opportunity for people to get creative with controlled cross-pollination, planting out seedlings, running trials, and things like that. So Cornelian Cherry went in, and, and I have that targeted for mead. Um, I think a Cornelian Cherry mead or Cornelian Cherry wheat beer would be just absolutely, absolutely awesome. So Cornelian Cherry went in. Autumn Olive. Autumn Olive went in for multiple reasons. It went in as a support species. Uh, and I bought, I think, 10, uh, you know, run-of-the-mill regular, I guess I'll call them, uh, regular autumn olives. I also bought some that are considered uh, almost a designer version. I bought one called an amber, which has an amber fruit, which is autumn olives usually kind of a red color. I bought one called ruby, and I bought one called garnet. And I think garnet, and I think I bought two of the garnets, Uh, three rubies and three ambers. And I've got the ambers and the rubies planted, and we're waiting for the garnets to come in. Um, autumn olive is a tree that has gotten, or really a bush, that has gotten a really bad rap for being invasive. And this is because the government is stupid. Yes, the government is stupid. We, I know that's something we say often around here, but there's a reason. So autumn olive is a nitrogen fixer, so it makes a good support species. It does get thorns on it. And it produces really tasty fruit, uh, really, really tasty fruit. It's like, like something that you usually, people think, well, that can't be any good because it's just all over the place. And it plants a pan in the ass. And then they taste it like, wow, that's, that's really good. Um, it would excel for making sauces, jellies, wines, jams, things like that. But it's pretty good to just eat. 
uh, out of hand. It would also probably make a, a really awesome uh, wheat beer. It, it probably would, just by the taste and flavor complexity. So I see this being an all-around fruit. I see these designer varieties being something that can be played with and cross-pollinated. And I've got a nitrogen fixer as well. So uh, autumn olive, I also think, has some real potential. It's a medicinal plant because it has a lot of really great um, uh, components to the fruit itself. Uh, so I've planted it, and I'm not worried about it being invasive because, well, I'm not the government. What do I mean by the government stupid? So what I mean by the government stupid is they found out, well, this thing grows just about anywhere, and it fixes nitrogen and repairs soil. So where it got out of hand is they planted tons of it along highway medians. Now, a highway median is just this broad, open, unmaintained, mowed a couple times a year strip. And, of course, in an environment like that, it's going to spread, It's going to constantly have the soil disturbed by the mowers. It's going to send out suckers, and it's going to be invasive. I've also found complaints from the Department of Natural Resources of Texas that the problem with autumn olive, get this, guys, the problem with autumn olive is since it fixes nitrogen and increases fertility, eventually some native species die out as the ground becomes too fertile for them. Uh, we refer that to that as repairing landscapes. So I have a lot of landscape to be repaired around here, so that's another reason Autumn Olives did. Oh, by the way, you guys should come by the blog today, even if you usually just listen. I've put up a picture in today's episode uh, that is the front yard of my house from this month last year and this month this year, just the front pasture. It now is kind of a pasture. It still has a long way to go, but uh, it really won a pasture last year. Uh, and it's an example not of all the fruits we're planting, but just just what can be done with birds and bird poop and a little cover crop and a little help from man. Uh, it's a pretty impressive difference you might want to take a look at. So with that, let's move on to the next thing that I've planted this year. So next up, goji berries. Um, and I have two links. One's the WebMD that just talks about the medicinal benefits. And the first link that I have listed next to goji berries is to... GrowOrganic.com, Peaceful Valley Farms, where they're offering bare root gojis, and maybe that will work. Um, what I found, and I'm not saying they won't live, but every place I've ordered goji berries from, the plants that have shown up look like a monkey beat the crap out of it before they put it in the box. They're just pathetic looking. Um, and I, I, I have to tell you, I finally got a hold of some really nice goji plants. Uh, they came from the Backyard Growers Forum on Mike McGarty's forum, which is something you can only get access to if you buy his course first and then pay a pretty conceivable, a pretty large fee to be part of this kind of private club. But I got 20 of them at $2 a piece, and they're the most beautiful goji berry plants I've ever seen. Uh, they're small, and they are suffering a little bit from shock. Um, but I have most of them not in the ground but in the greenhouse in pots, and I'm going to let them strengthen up before I put them in the ground. I did put four out and we'll see how they do. But I'm growing goji as a medicinal. It is one of the most awesome medicinal plants in the world. Um, and I also have some that are coming up from seed. I'm trying them from seed. So we'll see how that works out. Uh, but they are just a powerhouse of antioxidants. Uh, there's been research suggest suggesting goji berry may actually improve mood and protect against age-related diseases such as Alzheimer's. Um, there's not a lot of medical study, you know, robust medical study behind these things, but, you know, drug companies generally don't put a lot of money into researching things that they can't patent. Um, 
there is some interaction stuff, which is why I put the MD link, MD, WebMD link up. I'm not usually a quick guy to go to WebMD because they are, well, let's just put it this way. They're run by the medical industry, so they don't exactly generally give you the full-on value of uh, an herbal. It's like, oh, this is nice, and it does these things, but you would be better off with a drug. That's the, the angle there. But um, they do have a good um, assertion about the concept that you really don't want to take goji berries in excess if you're on warfarin, which you probably don't want to be on warfarin unless you absolutely have to. Uh, they may also interact with diabetes and blood pressure medications, so I would check with your doctor or pharmacist about that. If you have pollen allergies, this is probably not a, uh, a good thing uh, to be taking a lot of. At least that's what it says. So if you have a lot of pollen allergies, this would be something you would wean into. My favorite way to use goji berries, though, is I dry them out like raisins, and I put them a big handful of them in a hot water to make basically a goji tea. And after you're done drinking the tea, you eat the berries. Now, let me tell you something about goji berries. I didn't say this the first time I ever talked about them, and some guy was very upset with me. Don't go eating them by, like, the pound. Um, a handful, no big deal. Like a pound, major laxative effect. Um, think of it kind of like, you know, if it's dried goji, it's like drying a, prune, a plum to a prune. And if you eat a lot of prunes or drink a lot of prune juice, I'm just saying. So goji berries went in primarily for their medicinal qualities. So the next thing that I uh, have planted is aronia. Aronia is uh, native to the United States, but some of the better improved varieties have uh, had their improving done in Europe. And Europe just seems to take on uh, berries a lot quicker than America does. A lot of the stuff that I'm growing berry-wise uh, has had a lot of work done in, on Europe, in Europe or has its roots in Europe. Aronia is kind of sort of like a choke cherry, but sweeter-ish. It's the best way I can describe it. Uh, more like a black cherry uh, with almost a cranberry type of thing going on. In fact, I would tell you that for those of us who live in places where it's not practical to grow cranberry, aronia juice is a damn good supplement, uh, substitute. Uh, it makes an incredible wine, especially when mixed with elderberries, which I'll talk a little bit about in a section. A second, uh, it's also got a lot of antioxidants. It is considered a very uh, positive medicinal. Uh, berry. Uh, there's a lot of uses for it. I've seen it made into bread, into soaps, uh, all different types of things. So aronia went in. And uh, aronia should have no problem with my climate. Uh, it also is a plant that grows very good in sun and shade. Um, so that's, that is a, a positive thing so that no matter where you put it, it's probably going to do okay. It often seems like You know, wherever I want to put something, if it's a shady spot, what I actually want to put there really needs sun. If I want to put something in the shade, it's just something that needs, you know, vice versa. So um, it has that going for it, that it can be a good understory plant. And it can fit into shady areas, and it can still produce well. And it's a shrub that can be grown up to the size of a small tree or maintained a lot smaller. Uh, and it is highly highly productive once matured out. I've taken a variety of approaches, but I have some uh, uh, s selected varieties like Rain Tree Select, um, uh, like uh, Viking, and uh, what was the other one? Uh, Nero. And those are in various spots where they can be well looked after. And then down 
in an area that I'll talk about a little bit more in just a second where I have a lot of seaberry planted. I also planted a, a line of about nine seedlings. What I did is very inexpensively from a company called Burnt Ridge Nursery, I bought a bundle of 10 seedlings. And I figured these are just randomly grabbed seedlings. They're, they're you know, from, from seed. So they have varying genetics. And I would just plant them all and see which ones did best and start using them to create clones or crosses from there to bring in some genetic diversity and selection. Uh, you know, this would be something that would make sense to plant, you know, 200 of them if you were going to go into commercial production and plant 200 in the space where 50 should go and select out the best and then go from there. I'm doing that on a smaller scale, and we'll see how it works out. Ten may not be enough. I don't know, but we'll we'll see how it goes. Um, but one of the things I did that I picked up from Ben Falk is I took one of these little aronia plants, and I planted it right in my urban garden. I've done that with a lot of things that are planted further out, and this is why. I will be in that urban space every single day, one way or another, just pretty much if I walk outside, I'm there. So when I see that plant start to flower, well, I know that way out on my zone four, that that aronia out there is flowering. When I see it start to get ripe, I know that it's probably starting to get ripe out there, so I don't miss the opportunity for harvest. I thought it was very cool, uh, and again, I picked that up from Ben Falk's book. So the next one I have is seaberry, and seaberry is, well, I think it's something that I, I, I am, uh, I'm stuck on because of Ben Falk. And I've talked about this before, so I'll try to be brief with it. But I'll talk about how I'm trying to grow something that should not grow here. Um, seaberry, also known as sea buckthorn, is a very spiny and very ornamental shrub. It's pretty silvery leaves, bright orange berries, big thorns. Um, but it is a Scandinavian plant. It's something that can handle minus 40 degrees and still come back in the next year. Um There's some improved varieties of it. This is a Scandinavian thing. It's huge there. Northern Europe, it is considered like a life essence plant. I had one little shot glass of it at Ben Falk's, and all I could think is, wow, that's good for me. I need to have more of this. Uh, it, it just has a flavor that tells you that it's good for you. I don't know that you'd sit back with a straight glass of eight ounces of it and drink it. It's something you would dilute or mix in with other things and maybe have to sweeten a little bit to drink that much of it. But I would use it in small amounts uh, as a tonic. And it's there's, I, I've actually never tasted something before. That just the taste of it, intrinsically I knew this belongs inside my body. I mean, that's the only way I can describe this stuff. Now, it it's in theory too hot here to grow seaberry. I've got this space where I just talked about with the erroneous though. It, it gets morning sun, and it gets some midday sun, and it's balanced, some shade, and then sun, and sun, and then shade. Once the sun gets into that western sky in the blazing hot part of the day, it's, it's a very shady area. So it won't get baked with western sun. It is at my bottom lowest swale, so it's going to stay moist. So moisture, not so much that it needs it, but it should be cool down there. Um, and it, it, those two factors together, I'm hoping, will bring it through. I've taken a similar approach to seaberry that I have with aronia. I bought... Um, some improved varieties, and the two that I bought, I got from Burnt Ridge. One is called Garden's Gift, and one's called Golden Sweet. Seaberry has to have a male, though, a male and a female. So the improved varieties are females that I bought, about two of each, and I brought a male, so I knew I had a male variety. So I've planted the male and two of the females in a different area, also in that same general area, though, in, in berms in the swale. And then just down from there is this area where I have the aronia and seaberry line. And I've planted 
two of the improved varieties down there, and then I planted uh, a bundle of um, of unsexed seedberry seedlings. So uh, I think I planted six of those. Uh, so yeah, I bought I bought a bundle of uh, six of them. So I planted those down there. And then my thought was this: this is like again a miniature version of a Mark Shepard technique of buying you know ten thousand or a thousand chestnuts and planting them where a hundred are supposed to go. I planted them in the space allocated for you know the number that I had. So they're not really overplanted, but they're they're down there. In that area, and I have this bundle of, of, you know, I don't know if they're male, I don't know if they're female, I'm not sure. I'm gonna have to email Ben, and I'm gonna have to ask him, like, is there any way to tell when they start to bud out and flower or whatever which one's which, so I could at least identify males from females. Let's say I get two female varieties of those, and they end up tasting really good and being really good. I can work with those if they survive. Uh, and if I have a male that survives out of that bundle, and maybe I can start doing some crossing and grafting and things like that, and develop a, a southern hardy, at least when planted into a microclimate, seaberry. Um, I have a link today uh, to Burnt Ridge, which is where I bought mine. I think there's probably a lot of good suppliers of them. I also have a link for you to Ben Falks, where he now sells seaberry products. And when I tell you that I think there is a market for seaberry, here's why. I'm sitting on Ben's site. Seaberry Oxymol, four ounces, $23 sold out. Seaberry Tincture, two ounces, $23 sold out. Seaberry Science for grafting your own plants. Call about varieties currently available, $3.99 piece, sold out. So Scions are just a little cutting, an unrooted cutting from the tree. He's out of those. Freshly grafted Seaberry plants, selected variety, bare root, 12 to 18 inches, two-year-old plants, sold out. I have a feeling that Ben's putting in this pretty big farm, about 100 acres, near his uh, his 10-acre uh, place, and I bet you a lot of sea berries going in there. So I see this as a tremendous plant for uh, cultivation and commercial production and for market development throughout the United States, and I think it's something that if you can grow it, you probably want it in your in your yard just for the health benefits alone. Uh, check out the link to Ben's site. It's the second link in, in that line. Uh, because you get a lot of pictures of what the Seaberry and the products look like on that page. And uh, maybe he'll get some stuff back in stock sometime soon. So the next one I have for you is called Azarol. A-Z-A-R-O-L-E. Azarol, Azarol, Azarol. I mean, that's the best I can do with all my attempts at pronunciation. Um, this is something that I found at a, a website called One Green World. They're out of uh, Washington. And I've bought a lot of unique things from them this year. And this is what it says on their website about this tree. And I read the first sentence and I decided I wanted to try this. We found this unique fruit tree in Italy in 2001. That's all it took for me. I'm like, okay, they didn't find it until 2001. I, I want this. It's an attractive addition to your landscape. Arzol is self-fertile, easy to grow, small tree with white fragrant flowers, glossy reddish-green foliage. The foliage, foliage accents a striking red or yellow fruit. Great for fresh eating and preserves. Blueberry-sized fruit tastes somewhat like sweet apple, and then a gold and a red. I bought one of each. I'll be putting them in. Um, I think this is going to be something that I'm going to try and taste and, and then decide exactly what to do with it. It seems to lend itself toward making unique ciders and sizers because uh, it has this apple thing going on where it can be blended in with apple juice into a sizer. A sizer is an apple mead. Um, it seems like it could be something eating out of, of hand. It seems like it could be used for the production of juice. 
Uh, it seems like it has a lot of potential, but it also seemed like something, well, that's not something everybody has. So I put those into the urban space, a red and a gold Azerol, and I'll have a link uh, for more information about them. On Plants for, Fu for the Future database, where I have them, uh, I have a link to you as well. Uh, they get a four apple edibility rating and a medicinal rating of two hearts. Uh, and they're also, they were used pretty much as a folk remedy for a lot of cardiovascular things uh, in Italy, apparently. Uh, so I think if you're eating a lot of fresh fruits and vegetables and meats, uh, you're, you're just going to be, your overall health is going to be better. And there's certainly a plant like this is going to probably be pretty high in antioxidants. So that's always good as well. Next plant. Japanese or Chinese mountain yam, there's several different varieties, but they're pretty very much similar in their uh, their structure and type of plant. These are plants that grow a long tuber in the ground, and they grow a vine. And on the vine, you get little nutty tubers that are formed on the vine. It's like, a, like an air potato, which is actually next. And you can pick these things, and you can cook those, or you can actually dig up the, the, the root and prepare the root, or you can plant the tubers and get more vines a little the little ones on the top can be planted to produce more vines so i've gotten uh two different types of those one's referred to as a chinese mountain yam and i got that from oikos tree crops uh and the other one is referred to as a japanese uh, mountain yam uh that's coming from one green world and i believe they're probably the same plant being referred to two different ways uh but i have links to those the next one i have is air potato Air potato uh, is very similar to what I just said, only it grows more of a round potato-like tuber, and the stuff that grows on the vine is a much bigger tuber than the thing that goes in the ground. you got to be careful where you get them from because some of them are actually toxic, uh, So um, and they're also hard to get. Uh, I couldn't find any sources of them, and I was about to give up, and then this wonderful dude who has bees named Michael Jordan uh, came to my workshop and goes, Hey, look what I got. I got a bunch of air potatoes. Uh, so I will be... Uh, planting some of those to see how they do. Uh, but they are basically a potato that grows in the air. Uh, and, and they're definitely worth checking into. There is a concern that they can become invasive. And I, I think the problem there, again, is how are they being used? Um, and, and where are they showing up? And if you have food that's, uh, that's really doing, uh, growing well and uh, producing something people can eat, Is it, is it really a problem? Now, I am going to throw out some cautions here. Again, there's species that are similar that, uh, that are actually toxic, and then you're not supposed to eat the tuber from the ground with these. You're only supposed to eat the ones they produce above ground, unlike the mountain yam. Um, I put a link today next to Air Potato to Dave's Garden. There's a pretty good discussion on it on the page on Dave's Garden, including explaining how to tell the difference between the plants by looking at the leaves. Uh, but this is going to be something that I'm not telling you to go out and just eat anything that looks like an air potato to truly know what you're eating, which is a good rule all the time. Make sure you know the source that you're getting them from. Uh, but apparently these things taste a lot like a plain old everyday potato, and yet they grow above ground and you can pick them off the vine or pick them up when they fall. Uh, again, they do have a potential for invasiveness, but I think that's a lot to do with how things are managed. Next one I got for you is, is one I would bet 90% of the audience has never even heard of before. Um, it is called Mashua. It's also known as Aka. Uh, it's grown in the Andes uh, for its tubers. It's another tuber plant. You know, so I kind of group the tubers together. 
Uh, I've thought about growing this for a long time, but the pictures of it, I always thought of it as being pretty small, like too small to be worth digging out of the ground. Turns out they're about the size of a finger potato. They're about the size of a, a grown man's thumb. Um, they're bright white, and uh, I ordered uh, two packs of five of them. We'll be planting those. Uh, they're in the same family as Nasturtium, and they're pretty good for a pest repellent and nematode repellent. Uh, they have a flower that I would say looks like a small and somewhat closed nasturtium, orange, uh, and nasturtium-ish like leaves, kind of a cross between like a nasturtium leaf and a clover leaf. There's a guy that has a whole blog uh, called Growing Aka uh, on a Blogspot blog, and I have a, a link uh, to one of his articles. You can check out his whole whole blog uh, on this one plant. And I think this is an awesome plant. It seems like a, a no-brainer uh, in perennial forest systems as a ground cover. Uh, you harvest what you want and, and, and throw a few back in next year and do it again and do it again and do it again. Uh, that's my plan for it to see how it does. And the fact that it also helps to uh, repel uh, nematodes and other things, it seems like a, a no-brainer. Uh, this is something that I think is going to have a difficult time in some of your more northern climates. This is going to be more of a southern plant. Uh, down to about zone 7 is what Rain Tree says, and it says, or maybe colder. And I think that the, you know getting it into zone 6 is if you're in a zone 6 with a really long growing season, uh, then you're going to be good. If you're in a zone 6 with a short growing season, then maybe not so much. But it's something you can give a try. Uh, I got 10 tubers. I'll be planting them out this year and seeing how it does and letting you guys know my results. But Aka, also known as Mashua, I have a link again to that guy's blog, and I also have a link for you uh, to Raintree where you can buy them if you want to give them a try. How about tea? And I don't mean chamomile tea or herbal tea. I mean tea. I mean like a cup of tea. Um, camellia uh, tea, which is the common Ch Chinese Japanese tea. You make green tea or black tea or white tea from. Um, I have two varieties. One's called Tea Breeze and one's called Russian Tea. They're both gathered from uh, the Black Sea area around Sochi, Russia, uh, which is the northernmost area that tea is grown uh, commercially. And now, Sochi, you might think, is really cold because they just had the Winter Olympics there. Well, they had the Winter Olympics in Sochi. They had like, the skiing and stuff like up in the mountains because... Sochi is actually a subtropical climate. It's closer to zone 9 than it is zone 8 where I am. So it's a little bit marginal here. But I put it in a place where it'll get lots of sun and kind of get some warmth from the house as well in, in the urban space. And I bought two of them. So one's going to go in a pot. So a two is one, one is none. And I only bought one of the tea breeze variety. I haven't decided whether to pot that or put it out yet. The thing is it replicates really easily from cuttings. So I could put it out, take a bunch of cuttings off of it for rooting this winter, and if it dies, I still have rooted cuttings that I can try some other microclimates and see if it'll make it survive, or I can just keep it growing as a pot. But it, it seems to me that this is like a logical thing to grow. I like to drink tea. It, it grows easily. It's an evergreen shrub. It's pretty. It has nice flowers on it, and you can make tea. You know, It's not complicated to make tea. Uh, so that was something we added in, and... 
I do think it'll be something that when we have visitors and students that you know they'll find unique. It's not something you generally see in a backyard, though maybe it should be, especially Zone 7 and higher. also decided to do a couple things that were just totally different types of things, things that people might find neat. So I found a thing called a Dapple Dandy Plucot. A Plucot is a plum apricot cross. These things are sold in the stores under a brand name Dinosaur Egg. They're a large firm uh interspecific plum so it it has like a pale green to yellow uh, red and mottled skin uh but it has like a pink white flesh with like a spicy apricot plum cross uh taste they're supposed to be very very sweet and a very very highly productive tree uh, so we put that in the urban space just because it's different and because it sounds like it'd be really good eating On the same note, I've got this thing called a Telor to Syrian apricot uh, level. Uh, now, this is actually another plum apricot cross, but it's a, it's a natural cross. It's something that occurred in nature. This thing looks cool. The skin is almost black, and the flesh is like a almost a blood orange red. Um, and it just seems like a really cool plant. So we've added one of those to the... Uh, the urban space. So we have these two apricot plum crosses planted pretty close to each other to provide good cross-pollination and to have unique fruit. And I, I'm really becoming intrigued by these plucots and these other, you know, plum, apricot, uh, and others, uh, you know, uh, peach, uh, nectarine crosses and things like this. If these do well, we'll add more of this type of thing to what we're doing next year. Uh, next up today, honeyberry. Honeyberry is a, in, I think it is in the same family as honeysuckle, though it's not a true honeysuckle. I don't think it fixes nitrogen. At least nothing I can find on it says that it does. It is a plant that looks very blueberry-ish in its habitat. Beautiful flowers, great scent to the flowers. Um, small bush shrub type of plant. But the berries, while they, they taste very similar to a blueberry, but they're a little sweeter and a, kind of a honeyish taste to them, which is why they call them that are oblong, so they're a long berry. Uh, they're originally from Russia and parts of, of Asia around that area. Uh, this is another one of my edgy things. So it's, it's, it prefers colder climates. It's very, very cold-hardy. You guys, just about anywhere in the country, no matter how cold you are, can probably grow different varieties of honeyberry. Uh, I've got it in shady spots, cool locations, near ponds, things like that, and we'll try to make that work here. Uh, but that is like being grown uh, just because, again, it's different and it, it's unique and it's one of those things that I can try to push. And I've decided that it may make a lot more sense to look for cool microclimates here than hot ones. It might be a lot easier to try to get edgy with something like a honeyberry than to get real edgy with something like some certain citruses and things like that. Though I do have some other ideas about that as well. But as for uses, um, think of it as a blueberry. I mean, use it any way that you'd use a blueberry, but it's actually, uh, from what I was reading on it, higher in antioxidants and medicinal properties than blueberry as well. So uh, newberry from Russia, and I've got a pretty good uh, informational article for you guys linked today on that one as well. So next up is blue elderberry. Elderberry is very well known to a lot of people, but usually it's the purple-black elderberry. And I did plant some varieties like Nova and York as well. And there's actually golden uh, elderberries and some other really kind of cool, different 
uh, pinkish elders and things like that. Uh, keeping the budget under control, I uh, actually went out and uh, got blue as my one kind of uh, aside this year. And it's actually a northwestern U.S. native plant. So uh, it's not, you know, the northwestern United States and, and Texas are not really similar. But I have microclimates these things are in where they should do well. Uh, moist, uh, somewhat cooler areas than the rest of the property. Uh, they're cold hardy enough that that's not a problem. And if I can get blue ones to grow, then maybe I'll go ahead and try to go, grow some golden ones or pink ones or something like that. But elderberry is something that is a medicinal. And it's also good for wines and juices and things like that. But it's a very, very good medicinal. Uh, and Nick Ferguson from Permaculture Classroom, when we were doing the design on the forest garden, said, just take this spot here and make it elderberries. He said, if it was my family... With the value of elderberry for, for medicinal use alone, I would dedicate this space right here. It's perfect for it. So we put them there. We also put some in the Zone 2 garden. I've got a little bit of elderberry in the urban garden, and I've got some out in a hoogle bed. So um, we've got blue elderberry and other types of elderberries throughout the property, and hopefully they'll become a really good, reliable crop for us. Next up, something I did not even know existed uh, until this year, and I've only found one source of it. It's Willis Orchard, and I have been happy uh, with their, uh, their, uh, their, their shipping and, and their service, uh, so far and the quality of what I've received from them. Um, it's a white pomegranate. And the seeds are like pinkish, but the, 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 the skin is like a, a yellowish white. And I also bought a variety from them called Red Angel. And those are two pomegranates I've never even heard of before. I've got them both in my zone two, uh, orchard and my zone one, uh, garden. Uh, and I, I, I really hope they do well. None of my pomegranates have budded out yet. It has me a little concerned. Uh, I have scraped away some cambium, and they are all green, and they are all alive. And the ones that were here from previous seasons haven't budded out yet. It just seems like they should be. But the fact that none of them have uh, makes me feel a little bit better than if, like, one of them had. So... Hopefully those will do well for me. Uh, pomegranate should I should not have a problem uh, with at all. I used to live in northern Florida as a kid until we went back to Pennsylvania. Uh, Jacksonville, Florida, the climate there, to me, I remember it being much like the climate here. Maybe a little more rain, a little more humid, but as far as the winters, it was it's no colder here than it was there. Uh, and we had pomegranates all over the apartment complex I lived in. So uh, I'm thinking they'll do well. And that looks like another product that could be commercially viable uh, for the small orchard producer. Um, pomegranate juice has gotten huge accolades, but I think just the marketing that would come just from the term white pomegranate. Um, it would be pink. It wouldn't be as bright red as regular pomegranate juice, but it seems like a, a definite potential commercial product as well. I'm not growing it for that. I'm growing it because I like pomegranates. And uh, I do think there's a lot of health benefit to pomegranate as well. And to have some unique varieties that people aren't familiar with was uh, something that I, I couldn't pass on the chance to at least give a shot. Next up today, pineapple guava. This is also called fajoa. Uh, they're hardy to zone 8. You can probably, with microclimates, get them into zone 7. That may be important to me because I'm on like that zone 8, zone 7 barrier, depending on who you ask, what we really are. Um, we did get them into the ground. I got mine from Willis Orchards. Um, the students were here when they showed up. This, this, they showed up right in the middle of the event. And uh, we all looked at them and went, wow. I mean, these things looked like they were dug from the ground, packaged up, and shipped overnight in one day. They were beautiful. I put them in the ground. They looked beautiful. They looked happy. 
Uh, and then they were freshly planted and not established, and we got hit with a 27-degree night, late frost, like we always get here in North Texas. You think you're done, and you get one more just to kick you between the legs. And it knocked a lot of the leaves off of, especially the two in the back area, and the one out in the front I planted with Michael Jordan that gets more sun, uh, it took it a little bit too, but they all look fine. They look like they're going to survive. They usually, they usually flower in late spring, So I don't know if being hit with that might prevent them from flowering because they didn't have any buds on them yet or not. And then they fruit in late fall, which is good because it's when a lot of your other stuff is, is, is gone. As for the taste, uh, pineapple, guava, and a little bit minty. Uh, you cut the fruit in half and you eat it with a spoon. You each side out, boom, and, and eat them. They're an incredibly good fruit. They're a beautiful plant. They have a really cool flower. Here's the cool thing. The flower is edible. I know what you're thinking. If you pull the flower off, you won't get any fruit. Well, if you grab the petals of the flower and you pull the petals off, you eat those flowers. But you leave the center of the flower, it'll still set fruit. So it's actually an edible petal and then an edible fruit. Now, I don't think you're going to make a big meal out of flowers, but I know this for a survival guy to be saying this sounds a little fruity, but putting flowers in salads makes salads better. It's visually appealing, and it tastes good. And if you don't like it, you're not taking away my survival guy card anyway. Um, knowing what to eat, whether it's a flower or not, is part of being a good survivor. So uh, pineapple guava, we're putting that in. You guys in the south, you know, anywhere zone 8-ish and up, and edgy zone 7, good hot microclimates where you can keep things protected during the winter, uh, you could probably do that as well. Now, going out on a limb. The one we're really uh, giving it a shot, Arbincua Olive. Uh, this is an olive grown in Spain. It is the most cold, hardy olive in the world. It's not an autumn olive. This is a true olive, like a martini olive, right? Like an oil olive. If it's going to work at all, it's going to work with an Arbincua. Uh, I have them both out front in a very solar aspect friendly microclimate with kind of a rocky area uh, at the end of one of my main swales. And I've got them in my garden on the west end so they get the western sun plus they get full all day exposure there. And that area I will probably go in and put some rock around those ends of those swales or not swales, those hugel beds. Uh, to absorb some some warmth and heat and keep those things nice and toasty during the uh, summer. They're also not a big tree. They're really easy to train to like head height. So conceivably, I could give them some frost protection with simple frost blankets or something like that. But I don't want teacup plants, right? You know, teacup kits. I don't want teacup plants. I don't want plants that I have to go out and cover every time there's a frost under a certain degree. So we'll probably employ the uh, Mark Shepard technique. We've got four of them. They're in two separate microclimates, sheer tutter, total utter neglect. If they survive, they survive. If the two there survive, I know that's the kind of microclimate to replicate. If they survive over here but not over there, then to replicate that microclimate. So uh, we're going to give that a shot. And the last one is chingapin. Chingapin is like a miniature chestnut. And we have an area that's really kind of going to be nice and wet, a mixture of shade and sun. Uh, and a nice clump where we were doing our blackberries, and we wanted something low and bushy to go in with the blackberries, so we designed chingapin in. Chingapin, again, is like a little miniature chestnut. And the best way to think of it, and the reason we grew it is I'd like to grow chestnuts, 
And when I look at the size of a chestnut tree and the requirements of a chestnut tree, you're just probably not going to make it here. And I might be able to do some things to change that with some berming along my property lines. And I might just buy like a crap ton of Chinese chestnut, plant a bunch and stun it. Sheer total utter neglect. The ones that survive, survive. But that'll be a next year thing. And I wanted to get something in with a good track record of making it in this kind of climate. Chingapins are native to places like the Georgia swamps. Wet, hot, humid. So we got wet area, hot, but we also have some, some very dry conditions as well. So we've got it in an area where we're trying to get a little bit of a moisture microclimate going. So far, the ones that have butted out looked pretty good. So that's it. That's 21 things I planted this year. And guys, I'm not scratching the surface of what we put in. Um, I'll be doing videos all summer long for you guys with some of the stuff we put in. Hopefully, Joe and I will be able to do our last video together today because we're going to go on vacation and we're coming home. And the next day, Joe is leaving on his kind of sort of roundabout journey on the way up to uh, West Virginia. He's spending a little time with his wife's family after all this separation. Then he's going up to the Darby Simpson farm uh, to get some consulting from Darby on, on pork and poultry pasturing. And Darby's actually coming out to help us get some things set up on farm as well. So uh, things are moving forward, and uh, it's time for Joe to move on. I'm going to miss him when he's gone. I mean, hanging out with somebody every day for this long, uh, he's like family now. But it's also, you know, it is that time. He's got a wife. You know, and he's like, well, my wife wants me to go to, to uh, her family's on the way up there and spend some time there. I'm like, you owe your wife anything she wants. Anything she wants uh, after uh, her giving you the time to uh, to come out and develop yourself uh, here at the Spirico Homestead. So this is actually probably the last episode I'll do um, where Joe's still here. So there's a official send-off to Joe in today's show. Uh, but there are a lot of other things. I mean, I'm just going to give you some quick other things when I say other things that are, I've been planted. Uh, groundnut is another plant that I've planted to, uh, recently. Red and white currants uh, I've planted. Black cohosh, I don't have it planted yet, but it's it's out there. Dwarf mulberry, uh, white mulberry, called a, a variety called Beautiful Day. Uh, contorted mulberry, which may be dead from the frost. I don't know. that, that Mulberries can handle frost, but it was a brand new tree, and we got hit with that frost, and it doesn't look happy. We'll see if it, if it leaps back out for me or not. Uh, several different varieties of Israeli apples, like Erm Shimmer. Several different varieties of a plant called a gumi, which is a nitrogen fixer, similar to autumn olive, but less invasive and tastier and sweeter and grown more for commercial food production over in places like the Ukraine, where my family's from. Senna, which is like a pea variety, pea family plant, not really for uh, for eating at all, but for uh, a support species. I planted about 80 of those into the forest Uh, the food forest, uh, about a week ago, I was out looking for them yesterday. They're tucked in. They're small plants. They all look like they're in pretty good shape. Kiwis. We have several different varieties of kiwis, including an Isue hardy kiwi, uh, which is uh, a female, but it's also a, a self-fertile kiwi. You usually need a male and a female kiwi. We do have some things like Ken's Red and some other uh, hardy kiwis. Uh, so we have some males as well that we'll be putting in. So we have kiwis. Uh, most of, not all, but most of the kiwi is right now sitting in the greenhouse potted. Uh, some of it's recovering from a Charlie attack. Um, I had a bunch of it sitting out in, uh, so that I could work on, uh, potting it up and putting it out. And, uh, we had to leave for a while and Charlie, uh, was quite destructive with the kiwi. So apparently we've taught Charlie not to kill the birds anymore, but not, not to kill the plants. 
Uh, Charlie's in trouble, man. I also found an elderberry pulled out of the ground yesterday that was in pretty bad-looking shape. He didn't chew it up, but he did yank it out. I figure it's him. I don't know who else would do it. We've got purple asparagus. Uh, that's coming up in a, in a gooseberry clump. Uh, that's one of the ways we're trying to keep the gooseberries cool is planting them with a ferning plant like asparagus so that you take your asparagus tops in the spring and then you let some of them come up and you let them fern out and you get this dappled shade environment with gooseberries growing in amongst the asparagus. So uh, that's another thing we've done. Uh, hazelnuts slash filberts. We have a whole hedge of different varieties of filberts and hazelnuts. Uh, those those plants are doing very well. I've got a coffee plant. Uh, that's not going in the ground, though. That I'm just playing with this year. I'll probably be expanding that quite a bit uh, as I build a permanent greenhouse next year. And I want to grow coffee and I want to grow vanilla orchids in a greenhouse. And I have a plan to eventually make a deal with a Texas microbrewery to provide them coffee and vanilla for a very premium beer. And either they'll do it or I'll do it myself. Um, but uh, to be able to market a coffee vanilla porter or coffee vanilla stout with coffee and vanilla being grown in Texas, a very niche product. Uh, I don't need to make a lot of money on it. I'll almost provide it to them at almost no cost at all. Uh, I just want to be known for the guy that was able to do that. Uh, and I want to bring something like that to market. I can only do it on a small scale, but if I can prove it can be done, then it can be done on a larger scale. So coffee is uh, going. I haven't got any vanilla orchids yet. Scarabrosa rose, which is an old Rosa Ragusa variety of rose. It's a, it's a, a rose that's grown uh, as, a, as a pretty rose, but it's also specifically grown for very large hips. I'm talking cherry tomato size, big cherry tomato size rose hips. Uh, so that's that's also something that we've put in uh, this year. Uh, I mean, there's just a ton of stuff. When you start to look at uh, what we've done, we put in Dogol crab apple uh, as, an, as, a, as a tart apple that we can use uh, in ciders with the other apples as they mature and also to be um, a, a great aid with pollination. Put in jujube, jujube uh, Lee and Lang, and contorted jujube. Uh, so those are also things that we've, uh, you know, brought in that's, it's not something you usually see. I've talked about a lot on the air before, but it probably bears repeating here as we're talking about all the, the things that we've done this year so far. The roses, we also did, I have a, it's not here yet, but I have an order, a, a rose called Jubilee, which is another fruiting rose grown specifically, uh, for really awesome hips. I've found a blue crown passion flower, which is hardy, it's, it's almost as hardy as Maypop. So we've got some Maypop in, which is a native North American passion flower, but this blue crown uh, passion flower is uh, is also something that is a uh, hardy enough and supposedly produces a better quality uh, passion fruit. Because I've heard from some people that you know they grow Maypop and it grows like crazy, but the fruits are not really very useful. They don't get any juice out of them. They don't taste really good. They just have this awesome flower. Uh, so we're working with this blue crown passion flower variety as well. Uh, again, that's hardy passion flower, not a delicate passion flower. It has to be in a pot or a greenhouse or what have you. We've done Chickasaw plums that are a native plum. Uh, they grow like a small bush-like plum. And we've also done some just uh, uh, native southwest plums, more like a beach plum, but a southwest variety. We've done a bunch of different varieties of uh, persimmons and quite a few uh, fuyus. And fuyus are a non-astringent persimmon. Uh, they're the, probably one of the most popular uh, persimmons that you can uh, get your hands on. So we've 
re, I mean, if you started thinking of that, and then all the, the, you know, the peaches, the pears, the apples, and what have you, the amount of diversity that's gone in here is insane. And then I start to look at this, and I realize I've got so much work to do. I've got so much space with nothing. I've got so much opportunity to keep going with this. And now what we have is the stock. Because we're going to be doing an awful lot with cutting and grafting and, and making our own seedlings and varieties going into the future. And we haven't used half of our property at this point. Uh, even when we're looking to keep some of it open for grazing the birds and stuff like that, we have plenty of opportunities to do this in clumps with pastures in between and things like that. I was just standing over in the eastern uh, third of the property where the main food forest is yesterday going in the back of it, back by where the bees are going. Look at all this space right here. Look at how much in the urban thing, even when I get everything that we have ordered and everything that's here planted into there, I'm still going to be looking to add more stuff to it. And I mean more mainframe stuff, not just smaller niche products. We're doing tons of medicinals. I've got, you know, uh, chamomile. Uh, I've got all types of medicinal herbs going in. And I hope that a show like this kind of inspires you to what's possible. I mean, I know I'm the survival guy, right? And I talk plenty about preparedness and dangers and for everything from the political and economic dangers to just day-to-day -day dangers and natural disasters and preparedness and food storage and stuff like that. But part of why I'm optimistic about the world is how much we can do with so little. And when I start looking at what we're doing here, I realize we're putting this thing on a fast track to within two years from now, maybe three at the most, to provide us so much food we don't know what to do with it all. And start to provide us side incomes and things like that. I don't really need the side income, but if I'm going to go around telling you it's possible, maybe I should uh, uh, put up a little bit and demonstrate that it's possible. Uh, there's some real opportunities here. And I, I hope it inspires you because I'm on a piece of land that's suboptimal. I mean, if you want to know more about the food forest, it's all written up on Permaculture Global, and you can go read a whole report there. It probably needs some revision in addition at this point. But I have a PDF that's over 29 pages, all the species going in there. And I describe the land as exactly that suboptimal, including the soil conditions and, and, and what have you, and the alkalinity and the, how shallow the soil is and, and what have you. And, well, what if this was this exact same property, and the only thing different on this property was you had – Three feet of dirt before you hit main rock. Well, there'd be ponds and, I mean, there'd be swales everywhere and it'd be so much easier. And there's a lot of land like this that doesn't have rock a foot deep. And I mean slab rock in a lot of places. So, and even what we've done here, again, I really invite you, even if you're the person that normally just listens to the show on iTunes or whatever, or Stitcher or what have you, and doesn't go to the blog, go to the blog today, the survivalpodcast.com. Look at the picture of the front of the house. I mean, I'm I with all the stuff I talked about today. That's one of the things I'm more proud of. Um, you know, we put the birds through there. It didn't really look that great. We threw down some dirt. We threw down some cover crop, and we just let nature. We we have never watered it. We have never watered it. I think we threw a couple of bales of straw out there as well, and we fed it. We fed the dirt. Yes, we fed the dirt molasses. I forgot about that. When you look at the front of this house, and again. Uh, the picture that you'll see on the left is from this time a year before. The picture on the right is a picture from yesterday. Um, it's blow you away different. It's absolutely blow you away different. And I kind of want, as I finish up here, talk a little bit about Permaethos and the coming um, thousand member, founding member PDC, Joe will be teaching. 
And, you know, one of the reasons you might want to consider doing it. I'm hearing from a ton of people that want a piece of Permaethos. They want to be part of it. We're looking at some ways now, and we're, you know, there's a limit to what we can do. We're looking at some ways now where people with smaller pieces of land uh, can have a real connection to Permaethos and do some things under the Permaethos label. I can't tell you much more about that yet, but I, what I can tell you is this. And it won't be, you have to be in the thousand to, to be able to do this. But again, first consideration always goes to the founding members. But these other opportunities will have courses and certifications that go along with them. You will have to have a PDC. It may not have to be our PDC. It may be. We're not sure yet. But you will have to have a PDC along with the additional certification to take advantage of some of these other things. So, so think about that uh, as you're considering whether or not you want to be part of our PDC. I think our PDC at $300 is unbelievable value. I almost wonder if we're stupid for selling it for $300. Um, I really do. Because anything remotely close to it is $1,000, $1,200. A lot of PDCs sit in PDCs that are hard to get to, hard to go to, or $1,250. Um, and, and this is not a PDC that's just thrown together by somebody that says they do PDCs. I have multiple certifications, including one directly from Jeff Lawton. Uh, Josiah has his certification from Jeff Lawton. Josiah was the main instructor, also is certified in urban uh, and certified in earthworks. Um, so that's, you know, huge. Uh, Nick Ferguson, of course, has a full certification PDC. Uh, Nick Ferguson is helping with this, has 20-odd years of horticulture experience. The guy's been working as an employee or a worker in horticulture since he was 12 years old. And let me tell you why I'd rather have somebody with, with 22 years of horticulture experience at 34 than somebody with 22 years of horticulture experience at, let's say, 54. If you're doing things like that when you're a teenager, kids, you're learning way more than the adults can. I, I believe children learn at a rate that makes adults look dumb. So get your kids involved with this stuff. Because they're going to be the brilliant ones in the future. And we're going to need, when people ask me, like, why do you put so much emphasis on a show like today with all these different foods and things? We're going to need this stuff in the future. Our world is changing. Now, you know me, I'm not the doom and gloom, catastrophic, we're all going to die from global warming crap. It's nonsense. But we are going through major shifts. The population has pushed the planet on its, on its, just on that alone, to the, to its carrying capacity. You live as well as you do, whether you want to admit this or not. And I'm not saying that we're wrong for this. But the fact is, we live as well as we do. Because elsewhere in the world, far away where you don't have to look at it, people live with a lot less. If everybody had, the lifestyle that you do, it would be impossible for everyone to have it. Now, I'm not saying it's not earned on some level. I'm not saying we should redistribute it because I don't want to. But I am telling you that the rest of the world is going to start redistributing it through, simply through demand and ability to pay the bill. As you have growing middle classes in India and China, China on pace to be the global economic leader of the world by 2020. And nobody even disputes this anymore. People go, oh, it'll never happen. But nobody actually, see, that's, that's not disputing it, right? Somebody, like, I, I always, this is like the critical thinking stuff we've been talking about lately. When somebody just says, oh, that's not going to happen, that's not an argument. That's not persuasive. 
That's not convincing. Oh, that won't happen. Well, based on what? What trends in economics are you looking at? Because the, the top economists in the world that are just running the numbers are going, yeah, it's true. Huh. Now, I do realize that some of these are the same people who didn't tell you about the, uh, the, the, the uh, pending disaster of the 2008-2009 recession, but they actually did. Just no one listened to the ones that actually told you the truth. No one listened to crazy guys like Jack Spirico that were screaming that in the summer of 08 when I started the show. Right? But these things are real. And understanding not just how to grow food to feed ourselves, but to build new industries. We're going to shift in so many ways What are what is what are people that actually want to work going to do after some of these shifts? After people start to realize, you know what, we don't need to be buying the same crap over and over again. We're out of money. And we're either going to build products that last or we're going to stop buying certain junk products. I'm sure there will always be a trash entertainment industry and stupid crap like the Kardashians will always appeal to some people. But the vast majority of people are going to have a reckoning, an economic reckoning. And we're going to have to pick up and start rebuilding this country before it falls apart. Okay? We can't fix this country after it falls apart. It won't be the same place. And as bad as it's gotten and as far as it's gone from its promise, it will, be, it will make this look like Libratopia when they're done with it, if it completely falls apart. This has to be the first time in history that a society collectively says, as private, voluntary individuals, yeah, they're screwing it up, and we're going to fix it before it falls apart. That's why I'm doing things like permaethos. Permaethos has drug me back into the world of like filing corporate filings and having partners and capitalizing funding and being the company manager. and <sighs> Guys, I could sit here on my little farm with my ducks and my geese play around with my trees and my plants, hang out with my wife and drink beer in my pool for the rest of my life at this point. I've built a business that will support that, and it's a business that keeps getting more powerful. Why do you think I'm doing permaethos? If you think I'm doing it to become wealthy, you are out of your mind. The, 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 the whole system is designed to generate wealth at the point of production. For those of us that are in charge, we'll profit from it, surely. But the first few years, we'll be only money will be taken out of the companies to pay the tax obligations that owning the company creates. We're looking to build systems that enable and empower people and entrepreneurs throughout the country. And I want to do that for the person with two acres, and I want to do that for the person with 200 acres. I want to do that for the person that only has a little piece of land and says, I, I'll leave here, I'll go do it on somebody else's land. It's part of a community. But I want to do it for the person that says, I want to be here too. There's ways to work this out. There's ways we haven't even thought of yet. We're in the infancy and the genesis of this idea. But we've come a long way already. Stay tuned. And uh, again, I am going on vacation. And uh, I hope that all of you enjoy the time without me. I hate to say it this way, but I'm going to enjoy the time without you guys. Not because I don't love you guys. Not because I don't enjoy helping you out every chance I get. Uh, answering your questions. Answering your emails. But because everybody needs a break. And I am going to spend the next week and a half 
uh, walking the beach with my wife, picking up shells, hanging out with Bones and Navy, uh, and Travis Fox will probably hook up with, the guy that's working with David Crawford to make Lights Out into a movie, because uh, he lives on Sanibel Island. And I just sent him an email, and he's like, yeah, we definitely have to hook up. I'm going to spend a lot of time fishing. I'm going to spend some time drinking some pina coladas. The only time I ever drink pina coladas is uh, on vacations in Florida. I don't know why. Uh, maybe have a margarita or two. And uh, just enjoy my life. But when I come back, we're about to launch Full Tilt More into Firm Ethos. I hope you'll be part of it with me. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Shut is you.